I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to the Karma You podcast. This is your host, Chloe Brotheridge. I'm a coach, a hypnotherapist, and I'm the author of The Anxiety Solution and Brave New Girl. And this podcast is all about helping you to become your calmest, happiest, and most confident self. I also want to let you know that I see a select number of one-on-one clients at the moment. I have a few slots available. I see everyone online. So I use a program called Zoom. It works incredibly well. And I do a powerful combination of hypnotherapy and coaching. And if you want to check it out, you can head to my website, karmau.com forward slash work with me. I have a load of free resources on my website to help you to become your calmest self. Head on over to karmau.com forward slash free to grab those freebies now. Today on the Karma You podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Ellie Cannon. I met Dr. Ellie when we did a talk together. We were on a panel together and I loved everything that she was sharing. She's not only a GP, she's also an author. Her latest book is all about work health and the effects that our jobs can have on our mental health. And it's called, Is Your Job Making You Ill? She's also a columnist for The Mail on Sunday, I love her Twitter feed. She's very no-nonsense. She calls all sorts of things out. I love her approach. And I really wanted to speak to a GP because obviously I'm not a doctor and there are lots of things that I you know, really wanted to get her perspective on. So we talk about just how common it is for GPs to see patients with stress and anxiety. Hint, it's an incredibly high number. We talk about at what point we should go and see our GP if we're struggling mentally. This has to be one of the most common questions that I get asked. People say to me, when is it normal everyday worries and stress? And when is it something that actually I need to go to the doctors about? When is it a mental health condition? And she really clarifies this. We get into the topic of taking medication for anxiety. We talk about the stigma around that. And she gives us her professional opinion and shares her experience. We also talk about how to talk to your manager about how you're feeling in terms of your mental health. This is something that, again, I hear a lot of people asking this question, wanting guidance on this, and she is the perfect person to talk about this. She also shares just loads of other insights into work stress and how we can manage our mental health at work. So let's get into the interview with Dr. Ellie Cannon. 
This episode is sponsored by my favourite activewear brand, Sweaty Betty. Their all-female design team source the best technical fabrics, which means their products perform under the toughest conditions and feel amazing on your skin. All products are also wearer trialled by female staff to ensure they perform and flatter and fit the female body. If the staff don't love it, it doesn't get made. There are so many activewear brands to shop from, but Sweaty Betty is special because all their products from run and yoga to swim and ski are engineered to last. This is not fast fashion, it's high quality. And I have several pieces from Sweaty Betty that I've had for years and I continue to wear and love. Sweaty Betty now has a host of sustainable products, including their Super Sculpt leggings made from post-consumer plastic bottles. Their Italian fleece has been replaced with a recycled cotton blend alternative and they are reducing the amount of consumer packaging sent to customers. Sweaty Betty are offering listeners 20% off when you enter the promo code KARMAYOU on their website. You'll also find the link in the show notes. So 20% off at Sweaty Betty when you enter the code KARMAYOU. That's C-A-L-M-E-R-Y-O-U. Check out their stuff. I think you're going to love it. Welcome, Dr. Ellie Cannon. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I'm really well today. I've just been for a run to warm myself up partly and secondly to to burn off some adrenaline and stress because I have to say I'm I'm feeling a bit of work stress today so it's a good day for me to be speaking to you. Yeah very good day for you to talk to me then because that's obviously my uh, area of expertise. Could you tell the listeners what it is that you do and how you got to where you are today? Um, Well, I'm a GP, so a very normal NHS GP. I do really normal things in clinic that everybody would be familiar with, seeing kids, seeing adults, seeing the elderly. Um, In general practice nowadays, we see a lot of mental health. Um, And obviously, I do a lot of writing and broadcasting. And a couple of years ago, when I was asked to write another book, um, they particularly wanted to see um, what sort of things I see in practice. And I had a few ideas about sort of weight loss and exercise and chronic health. And I also mentioned um, that I think anybody would be quite surprised by the amount of job stress that I see or people who are really ill as a result of their job, either with anxiety or depression or stress that is caused by the job or people who've got chronic illness say like arthritis or they've already got a chronic mental health problem and it's made worse by the job and actually my publisher was really really interested in that and said I don't think people talk about that enough um it was just at the start of the sort of wave that we see now talking about mental health so um I had the opportunity to write a book all about how you look after yourself if you are unwell um mentally really and more so than physically as a result of your job um so focusing on stress and anxiety and depression how we should look after ourselves how you can find help um how you can help yourself um and yeah that's how i ended up talking so much about this amazing thank you and i I really loved your book it's so kind and informative and helpful think um yeah it must help a lot of people and one thing thing that I hear all the time from people is that they feel nervous about going to their GP to talk about their mental health and 
I've, from a f the few doctors that I've spoken to, I think people don't realise just how common it is for a GP to have patients talk about their mental health. Do you have kind of, what would you say to someone that's feeling nervous about speaking to their doctor and, and how common is it for you to see patients for things like depression and anxiety? So I would say, I mean, without looking at official figures or statistics, I would say as an anecdote, probably 50% of the patients who walk through my door are going to be talking about something to do with mental health. Now that might be, they're actually coming in to talk about their eczema, which is very bad at the moment because of stress. So it might not be the first thing that they've come in with, but often it is. Um, so I would say to anybody, your GP is absolutely the right place to be talking about your mental health. Um, I agree with your experience that a lot of people do seem to be reluctant or nervous. They're worried about having that on their record, um, worried about sort of the stigma even within a private GP clinic room of talking about that. Um, but it's very, very normal to start off uh, with talking to your GP. Um, I would particularly encourage men. Um, to come to their GP to talk about it. Um, not enough men come to the doctor, particularly between the ages of about 20 to 15. We know that men of that age suffer with um, mental health, with depression, they're at risk of suicide compared to other groups. So it's really important that people feel able um, to come to a GP to talk about that sort of thing. Yeah, okay, that's, I think, going to be quite reassuring for people to know that actually 50% of the, the patients that their doctor might have seen might have been having similar experiences to them. They're not the only one. They're not going to be shocked by what, what they say or if you burst sure. into tears, that's quite normal, I imagine. Um, so to not worry too much about that. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very normal. Very normal if you can't find the words. Um, very normal to cry. Um, it's quite hard to face a good GP. And that's the other thing, actually. Um, we know that um, patients sort of test us out and sometimes a patient will come in with something really minor and actually they're testing out um, what we like to talk to. So they might come in to talk about um, their Veruca or something really, really small just to sort of see what, um, see what we like. And it's totally fine to do that. It's totally fine to see if that's the GP for you. GPs are not sort of all the same. We're very, very different, different ages, different interests, different personalities. So it might be that the GP who you go to to talk about your blood pressure is actually not the one who you go to to talk about your anxiety. So test, test it out, take someone with you if it's better for you. Um, so yeah, there's, there's definitely ways you can make yourself feel more comfortable. Yeah, that's such good, that's such good advice. Um, in terms of anxiety, do you, what are the common things around anxiety that you see people coming to see you? And how much do you think is work an aspect in people's anxiety? So I think with anxiety, so, so I think it's important to point out that anxiety obviously is a normal symptom. So it's totally normal if you have a job interview to feel anxious that morning. It might be a normal part of that anxiety that you feel a bit sick, that you don't feel like eating, that you rush to the toilet, and that's all sort of normal. Anxiety becomes a health problem and becomes anxiety a disorder when it's really the overriding symptom that you feel all the time. So even 
on days when you don't have a job interview, you feel sick and you feel anxious and you've got sort of overriding anxiety all the time. Um, I think nowadays with work, because of the way we work, um, the pressure on deadlines, the pressure of presenteeism, um, the pressure of sort of having to be doing so many things all at once and targets and hustling for work and all of this, I think it is hard to separate what is normal anxiety and what is real anxiety. And I suppose the way to test that out on yourself is really to see if you can switch off on a Saturday. Can you turn your phone off and, as you just said, go for a run and actually relax? And can you actually calm down? Or is it still there? And I think if it's still there, you know, then that is a concern. Can you relax? Can you make a plan with your favourite person doing your favourite thing and enjoy that and go out and enjoy that without feeling nervous? Um, and if you can, then that's good. And it's you know probably just normal stresses and strains of life. And if not, then then it could be that you have some anxiety. And a, a common question that I hear a lot is from people: At what point do I go to my doctor? You know, even if. I'm feeling anxious every day, you know, is that enough to go to the doctor? How bad does it need to get? How do I know whether it's bad enough? What, what, what do you say to people about that? Um, so we always talk with all sort of, I suppose, health problems, whether it's mental health or whether it's potential symptoms of cancer, that it's always best to get in there early. Um, and it might be that you go to a doctor and your doctor says to you, actually, I think that's normal. I think that's the stresses and strains of life. Um, in order to diagnose anxiety, um, we do look at a lot of specific um, traits, a lot of specific situations. So things like I just asked, like just mentioned, you know, can you enjoy going out with friends? things around your sleep, things around panic. We sort of go through a questionnaire and a series of questions to try and unpick um, whether or not you do have anxiety. Um, I would say the minute you're asking yourself that question, should I go to the GP, that's the right time to go to the GP. Um, because most people who are feeling a normal level of worry or anxiety wouldn't actually think that. Okay, so if you're, if you're worried about it, that's a sign that it probably mm. is something to, to get some help for. And it's better to get help sooner rather than wait and let it get worse, potentially, maybe, if, if it's left untreated. So yeah, that's exactly right. That's right. I think if it's, you know, the anxiety itself can become a worry and then you're sort of worrying about how much you're worrying. And that in itself could be indicative that actually it's time to um, seek some help. Mm -hmm. um, in your book, you talk about um, workplace relationships as being a big factor in mm. what can make us sick at work. And you know, you mentioned toxic um, colleagues and bosses that are not so nice. Do you, I mean, that's such a tough one for people to deal with because it's almost as if there can be no escape sometimes. If you've got a colleague that is an absolute nightmare um or if you don't get on with your boss it's that inescapable kind of stress and yeah. um, what do you suggest to people about that sort of thing 
Well, I think that um, we all really underestimate the importance of relationships, both in terms of our personal life and our personal mental health and also our mental health at work. And actually, when I researched the book and I looked at what were the biggest causes um, of uh, mental health um, problems at work, um, workload was the biggest cause and then the second biggest cause was relationships at work so as you rightly said um, colleagues who are not supportive um, bosses who are difficult people and um, your juniors who might be difficult it's not always it's not always the obvious relationship um, but equally what we also see is that those relationships can also be what protects you at work and what saves you at work. And I think we mustn't sort of lose sight of that. So the um, really simple act of having lunch every day with a colleague where both of you have got your phone out of the way for 15 minutes, so you're actually talking and interacting. Um, it might be that your boss is very difficult to deal with or one of your colleagues is difficult to deal with. But if you've got strong relationships with everybody else around you, then that gives you the resilience to be able to cope with that one relationship. It's worth building up what seems like those trivial almost relationships with, you know, the person you say hello to on the door or the person who works in the next door office. Those sort of, those sort of interactions give us the resilience to cope with what is difficult. Now, obviously, of course, there are situations where people cannot get on with a colleague and that makes work very difficult and it can I've seen in practice it can lead to people leaving their job and all sort of sorts of trauma and grievances and all things like that I think that's unusual actually um, but it does happen of course but anything we can do to build up our resilience is going to protect us a little bit from that um, so I think it is so key to focus on those good relationships at work and really simple things like in my GP surgery we have a 10 minute coffee break every morning in the middle of surgery which we didn't used to do but being a GP can be quite isolating because you're where you're seeing patients you're not seeing your colleagues so we just sit down for 10 minutes and sometimes we're talking about what was on TV last night sometimes we're talking about a, um, a patient sometimes you know so we talk about all sort of different things but it's just that sort of human contact that's really brought us together um, and it's really, really, it means you've got, you know, you can let off steam. It means, you know, you can have a laugh. It just gives you that, just gives you that little boost for the rest of the day. Yeah, it's so, so important, those relationships that we have. I was talking to on the podcast, um, Julia Samuel, who's a psychotherapist. Um, and she talks a lot about how our relationships are the most important things in our lives. And we can get so caught up in all the other things that we have to do that we can neglect them or not make time for those things, not, um, or I suppose with, with anxiety, sometimes that can mean we isolate ourselves and then there can be a bit of a vicious cycle of anxiety and depression because we're not, don't feel able to, to spend time with people. So it's so important. Um, and, and I love the idea of just having a, you know, a tea break with your colleagues, arranging something, um, you know, going for lunch. It's really simple things that can just give you that resilience for your relationships mm. and I think with the current because you asked me earlier about sort of about the current current way we work I think unfortunately the current way we work that has sort of unwittingly actually sort of 
not ruined, but almost reduced those opportunities for those relationships. So if you imagine a sort of workplace in the 1950s or 60s, you know, lunch was a very set time. Everybody would have had lunch at one o'clock or on their shift pattern. Everybody would have had lunch in the canteen at work or whatever the kitchen is at work. They'd have all sat there with their packed lunch. It wasn't everybody walking out to get a sandwich by themselves, checking their phone, doing this, doing that. So almost the relationships had to be built up because there wasn't really anything else to do. Whereas now we tend to work a bit more flexibly in some ways, but but you know, but, you know, differently. You can pop out if you're working in an office at a certain time to get a sandwich. The chances are you'll take the opportunity to pop here, pop there, check something on your phone, do this, do that. Probably won't bring in a packed lunch. There might not even be somewhere where you can all sit at work. Um, so I think sort of those things have changed, which is why we almost have to um, almost rather. Uh, I suppose artificially bring them back into our lives. Um, when I first started working as a GP 15 years ago, it was in the clinic I worked in, it wouldn't be sort of heard of now, but the receptionists all stopped at 11 o'clock and made us all tea and coffee, you know, very sort of old fashioned, really. Um, but actually, that meant that we all, you know, that did mean that we all stopped. Now, obviously, nobody would expect that now. But we've had to sort of bring that back in order to bring back that social connection at work. And I, I work for myself and quite often spend time at home. And I, so I don't have colleagues to, to socialise with, but I've got other friends who do similar work to me. And sometimes we'll go and go to a co-working space. And we don't actually get that much work done, I have to say, but um, we end up just chatting. But it is just about trying to organise those times to get out of, the routine, get out of the busyness, get away from your desk and um, be around other people. So important. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you about talking to people at work about stress or anxiety, because this is a, such a big topic. And I hear this question asked a lot about how to broach the topic with managers. Should we talk to you know, people at work about our mental health? Um, or should we look into things like unions? I know you mentioned a lot of different resources in your book for that. What do you suggest to your um, patients when they come to you about, about their work stress? Um, I think you have to start off with a safe person or a safe group, if you like, almost to test the water. Um, and it might be that that person is family member might be that they're definitely not a family member because they wouldn't understand it might be that they're a friend it might be somebody in an online community I think you have to once you've sort of started having that conversation with your GP I think you then have to have a sort of safe conversation um, with somebody else third party not to do with work um, to see how it sounds, to test it out, to see what the reaction is, to see how you're going to feel when you're asked questions, just to sort of, you know, really in the same way that people have to um, when they're diagnosed with serious physical illness, you know, how do you feel, the sort of questions people ask can be quite intrusive, might be quite surprising, you know, just, just a sort of testing conversation, first of all, away from work. And then I think you, you have to ask yourself, then if you are going to have the work conversations 
who do you need to talk to? Do you need to talk to somebody because you need time off, because you need workplace adaptations? Do you need to talk to anybody? Do you need to talk to anybody? It's your, it's your private information. Perhaps it's good or would make you feel good at work to talk about it because you want to do that. But again, that has to be with people who you can trust and who you will not look back years later and think, did that affect did that affect my sort of career? Did that, you know, so you have to sort of, it has to be very, very measured. It's not the sort of thing you blurt out in the middle of a work meeting on a sort of random day. And then I think you have to remember the person you're speaking to, you know, um, may not have talked about these things before. You have to remember the person you're speaking to may not have um, spoken about this before. They may not, may not understand the words or the language that you're familiar with. They may not appreciate that anxiety as, a, as an illness as well as <clears throat> a symptom that we all feel. So you have to, you know, almost give that person the space as well um, and make sure it is measured, make sure it's planned. It's not a sort of shop floor conversation on the hoof quickly. It's something that has to be um, planned and decided, perhaps an email first or a message first to say, this is what I want to talk to you about, when would be a good time. Um, but remember that it's not, it's not necessarily a difficult conversation, but also it might not necessarily just be a difficult conversation for you. It might be a difficult conversation for them as well. Um, so I think there's lots of different, lots of different factors, um, that can come into it, but it does have to be very, very planned. I think. I, I love the idea of sending them an email beforehand and letting them know what it is that you want to discuss with them, because that's kind of a two step process that kind of takes the pressure off surprising them I suppose and the, and the anxiety that might come about from that and gives them a chance to prepare and think about how they can respond in a in a helpful way hopefully um so I think that's such a such a good idea and well I think if I imagine myself in clinic and you know I see patients every 10 minutes and they different patient will come through the door after 10 minutes and sometimes we have an idea of why people are coming in and sometimes we don't and sometimes we think we know why somebody's coming in and they're coming in for a totally different reason. Um, and as a GP, that's what I'm trained to deal with. I'm trained to talk about somebody's headache and then the next minute talk about a baby's nappy rash and the next minute talk about somebody's depression. Um, but it, it sort of, it can be, you know, quite surprising. It can be quite difficult sometimes to switch into that mode. And that's even as a trained professional. So I think if you've got a team manager or an HR professional who may not have ever spoken to anybody about their mental health, um, even though they are supposed to be aware that it can be a problem, I think it could be quite difficult. You won't be doing yourself any favours if you haven't given them any forewarning. This podcast episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? Therapy has massively helped me in the past to make sense of my thoughts and process my emotions. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can start communicating with them in under 24 hours. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counselling that's done securely online. This service is available for clients worldwide and BetterHelp matches you with a counsellor based on what it is that you want to work on and their expertise. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is also available. 
BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. And BetterHelp are doing a special offer for Karma U listeners. You get 10% off your first month when you visit trybetterhelp. That's betterhelp.com forward slash Karma U. That URL again, trybetterhelp.com forward slash Karma U to get 10% off your first month's online counselling. Um, I really, you touched on something earlier about eczema and um, the kind of the mm-hmm. psychological things that might be at the root of that. And, and I know you talk about it in your book about the link between stress and physical issues. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what is the link there? Because some people might think, oh, is it all in my head? You know, have I created this issue? But it's not, that's not the case, is it? No, it's not. So it's really, I think it's really difficult for people to understand even myself as a doctor that psychological or emotional things can cause physical symptoms and the way to think about it and to understand it is um, sort of like the example I gave before of the job interview Um, before a job interview sure you feel nervous and you have the psychological feeling and the emotional feeling of feeling nervous or scared or whatever you feel But you also do experience physical symptoms, which might be rushing to the loo, you might feel sick, you don't have an appetite. Or like when you're a child and you know that your mum or dad is going to tell you off and you start to get butterflies in your tummy and you feel sort of like a tummy ache. So we've all experienced actually physical symptoms from something psychological, but still we all find it very, very hard to understand that link and it's probably hormonal it's probably to do with cortisol and adrenaline and all of these different things which are triggered by psychological side of things and then um, give us give us physical symptoms so definitely there's a link definitely people are not imagining it um so in terms of what i see in clinic um i suppose the main one is the sort of phenomenon of people who come in and say I'm in all the time there must be something wrong with my immune system I'm in all the time I get the coughs and the colds and the this and the sore throats and that and absolutely everything and it's always me in the office who's ill all the time and they tend to be um, my patients who are stressed who are not sleeping well um, who are not looking after themselves because they're stressed, so they may not be eating properly, they may not be exercising, um, they may um, just not be doing all the things that we know are protective. Um, so that is a really common one, being in all the time, um, from a sort of stress point of view. And then there are definitely physical health conditions that worsen with stress and anxiety and mental health problems. So I mention eczema particularly because skin conditions are very closely related to psychological conditions. And anybody with eczema or psoriasis will tell you that in times of stress, their eczema is worse. Now that will be because of the stress itself, but also because people don't necessarily look after themselves well when they're stressed out or feeling unwell. So those type of conditions take a lot of personal management, a lot of creaming, a lot of sort of doing certain things. And that can sometimes fall by the wayside when we're stressed, but also just being stressed itself makes the condition bad. Um, So skin conditions are definitely one that, gets a lot worse when people are unwell otherwise 
pain conditions as well. So conditions like endometriosis or arthritis or people, obviously the commonest condition in the UK, having a bad back, they are worse when people are psychologically stressed, when people are sort of poorly in terms of their mental health. We know that that pain is worse. Um, and the flip side is opposite. We know that if your pain is bad, that will make your mood worse. So it's a, it's a sort of very sort of simple backwards and forwards pattern between, between the physical and the mental health. I was really surprised. I don't know if it was something that you'd written about the link between back pain and stress, that a lot of back pain is linked to, to stress, which you wouldn't necessarily assume because um, it seems like such a mechanical thing. But I think that's really interesting. Um, what about yeah. IBS? I, I, sorry. Um, the thing that, that, that comes to mind for me when I think about um, stress and physical illnesses, certainly from the clients that I see, is, is IBS and and the link between anxiety and IBS. Is that something you see a lot of? Yeah, so a huge amount. So just like I said, um, psychology is very related to um, our skin. It's also very related to our tummies and our, our guts and everything else. So like we said, you know, before the job interview, there are those physical symptoms and they're tummy symptoms, aren't they? lack of appetite, feeling sick, rushing to the loo, very, very close link between how we feel um, and our bowel. So irritable bowel syndrome causes predominantly tummy pains, but also change in bowel habits and bloating. Um, and that's a very, very strong link. People with IBS will see very commonly that they have um, a flare when they are, when they are stressed out. Um, their toilet habits will change, their amount of tummy pain will change and increase. Very, very close link. Um, and again, that trigger could be simply the stress, but then it's also what you do when you are stressed or anxious or unwell. If you're not eating properly, if you're not reaching for the right foods, if you're not taking the time to look after yourself, um, not taking the time to make yourself a lunch with foods that are not going to trigger your symptoms. So all of those things can also worsen symptoms at a time of feeling unwell. Yeah, what I often hear is that it's a bit of a vicious cycle. So you have IBS because you're anxious, maybe. And then it makes you anxious having IBS because you're then worried about the IBS yeah. and needing to the toilet and the pain and it creates a kind of a bit of a vicious cycle for people so um i suppose in terms of what people can do about ibs is it speak to your doctor first port of call you know for that sort of thing as well so i think with ibs we have um we have very specific treatments that don't treat the condition itself they merely treat the symptoms so we have um medications for bloating that are known to work quite well obviously we have antispasmodics and pain medication that can sort of calm down those spasmy tummy pains that people have with IBS but we don't have any treatment per se um, it's part of guidelines now that we recommend for IBS that people try a probiotic so a probiotic supplement to increase your gut friendly bacteria um, to improve your general symptoms, and that can help. 
And if you're going to try that, then you need to try something, basically the same brand every day for a month, and then you'll see if that's having a, an effect on you. Um, so I would say if IBS is something that people are, are suffering with, definitely do the probiotic idea, but also do a food diary and get to know what your triggers are because that's really going to be the mainstay of your treatment. The stuff that a GP is going to give you is going to be treating the symptoms. And it's almost better if you can to try and work out what those triggers are. And they might be the obvious triggers, like the um, dairy type triggers or like specific types of fruit and vegetables, which can be very sort of gassy and give a lot of the bloating and the tummy pains. Um, but it might be something that's, that's very specific to you. Thank you. That's, that's really helpful, I think, for people um, to, to try those things. Um, I really wanted to ask you how you stay calm because you obviously are a GP, you know, with a busy practice, you write books, you write for the um, mail, you're on, you're on TV. What are the things that help you in, in your life? So I think the honest answer to that is I don't really, I don't really stay that calm. Um, I think it's fair to say um, that I uh, definitely have anxiety and I have been through episodes of my life where I've needed help for that anxiety, either in a, a medicine form or also therapy. So I think that, um, you know, doctors like anybody else suffer with, you know, conditions, whether they're mental health problems or physical health problems. I think probably the protective factor for me um, is twofold, really. Definitely people. Um, I'm a people person. That's obviously why I became a doctor and became a GP. But definitely for me, I have certain relationships that are incredibly positive and incredibly different ways, actually. So whether that is sort of pure joy and sort of love and happiness that comes from having a relationship with my kids or my husband, but also very supportive relationships um, with people who are colleagues and not friends, so colleagues at work. Um, and just, just sort of very, very much for me, um, what comes from, I suppose, what protects me really are people and relationships. I definitely find, I mean, I'm not a natural exerciser, I'm not a naturally sporty person, but I definitely feel better on the days that I have either walked or been swimming or had the chance to go to an exercise class. Um, and for me, that is, that is definitely good for my mental health, definitely keeps me calm. Um, and also I need a lot of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so despite having years as a junior doctor and used to being woken up overnight and used to a few hours sleep and then having children in the same, um, I know that I need lots of sleep and sometimes if I do feel unwell or do feel particularly bad, actually I can look back and see that is related to a poor night's sleep. Mm, such an important one, isn't it? I think. Yeah, sometimes if I'm not feeling well, if I'm feeling stressed, I'll go to bed at 8.30 or something and just mm, <laughs> have about 10 hours sleep and always feel better in the morning. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to ask you as well, because I follow you on Twitter and I love the things that you post. 
often kind of myth busting or holding people to account for the some of the medical you know I don't know mistruths that go around what what uh can you share anything that you're really passionate about at the moment in terms of what you've been writing about um or what's really important to you so I think actually so you know very relevant to you and your listeners what I find there's sort of a couple of things within the mental health conversation um that I that I sort of find quite hard and that I, I do like to call out. So first of all, um, I don't like the notion of um, antidepressants being called happy pills um, and being shamed um, in any way. Um, they seem to be a very easy target. Um, unlike blood pressure tablets or diabetes medication, they seem a very easy target for headline writers and for people to think they're unnecessary, they're a chemical kosh. There's all these sorts of, as you say, mistruths that come out um, about antidepressants. Um, and I, I, I find that really distasteful, actually. I have patients who are alive as a result of taking antidepressants. That doesn't mean that they work for everybody. That doesn't mean that they don't have side effects. They do. But they are a medication like a blood pressure medication. Um, and they can be essential. They don't make people happy. They treat depression. They treat anxiety, actually, um, pretty well in a lot of cases. Um, so I don't really sort of I don't really like that whole narrative around medication. It's quite trendy for celebrities who've had mental health problems to say they didn't need an antidepressant. They went to music classes or they took up gardening. So you know, look at me and my strength because I didn't need that. And that's very, very stigmatizing for anybody else who's needed medication. So I think we have to sort of be careful, be careful about that. And that's something I, I like to call out, as, as I'm sure you would have seen. I suppose mm. the other thing I find hard with, with now that we talk about mental health so much, which is great, is are we in danger very slightly of of um, diluting it and sort of watering it down and actually not giving the voice to really the people who are really um, suffering with their mental health because it is sort of diluted by so much noise by everybody who claims to have had, um, you know, um, anxiety or depression or, or sort of people, you know, we, we can't sort of check people's claims, can we, when they talk about it? And I wonder if all of this noise, um, you know, and almost, dare I say, almost fashion um, to um, disclose a mental health problem, um, we're in danger a little bit of belittling what um, people who are really gripped by mental health problems are going through. Because um, obviously that's quite a different face, the face of sort of the privileged celebrity who has you know, access to treatments and access to all different things compared to people with very significant mental health problems. So th th there's sort of different stories there. And I think we have to be very careful if we are involved in that, in that narrative and that dialogue to tell, to tell the real story um, and not to water it down and not to sugarcoat it um, and, um, you know, get it right, really. Mm, that's such an important point, I think. I think I, I hear this a lot as well about the, the term anxiety is used so often to cover a mm. range of different things from 
oh, I've got anxiety about something very trivial that actually it's not really anxiety. It's a slight bit of discomfort, but it's not, it's not really comparable to the type of anxiety where someone can't leave their house and they're having panic attacks every day. So I think there is an interesting discussion around, um, yeah, trying not to trivialize it in that way. And maybe we need like a new word for different types of anxiety that talk about the different kind of levels of severity of it. Um, mm. And I really like what you said about the, the medication thing. You know, it is, yeah, it, it can be a, a thing to do with privilege where if you're privileged enough to spend thousands of pounds going on having different therapies and things, maybe then you don't need to go down the medication route. But if you don't have access to that and you have to be on a waiting list for, for therapy, maybe you don't go on the pills while you're waiting is, you know, all you can do. And so to, to, make, to make that wrong somehow, I think is yeah terrible and thank you for yeah sharing that and, and hopefully destigmatizing it a little bit more for everyone listening and mm. um, can you share with us where people can find out more about you and your work and buy your book and, and that sort of thing yeah sure so um my book um on mental health at work is called is your job making you ill in fact i'm going to show it to you i'll have a copy perfect thank you um and it is available in all normal bookstores and online and everything else um so that's good and um i suppose the best place to find me probably is on social media so i'm pretty active as you've said on twitter um and um yeah my hashtag not my hashtag my um twitter handle is at dr underscore ellie and that tends to sort of give everybody all the information they need about me. Um, so yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much for talking to me. It's been really, really helpful. Thank That's you. Okay. Nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope that you gained a lot from this episode. Come on over to Instagram and let me know what are you taking from this episode? Find me at Chloe Brotheridge. And I would love it if you would leave me a review in the podcast app or in itunes subscribe to the podcast leave me a rating and is there someone in your life that would really benefit from this podcast you can let them know by sharing this podcast i'd be so so grateful so i'm just wishing you a wonderful week ahead sending you loads of love hopefully you'll tune in again and i'll see you soon even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.